Hello, Lime Ninjas, and welcome to episode 70 of Lime Ninja Radio. I'm your host, McKay Rippey, and with me in our ninja studio is Aurora. Hello, everybody. And before we get going, I want to introduce our new sponsor, Greg Lee. He is putting on a fabulous online training for Lyme literate practitioners. And if you ever wanted to learn more about alternative treatments, this is the seminar you want to go to. And also, if you have a Lyme literate practitioner who think might be interested, please pass the word. Here's a word from Greg. You know, over the past 17 years, I've been working with hundreds of Lyme patients, and many of them, 80% of my patients are on antibiotics. i got 20 Lyme literate doctors in my area, and I see patients from all of them. And they've tried Buner, they've tried Cowden, they've tried Marshall, they've tried Zhang, uh, they've, you know, they've got to a Rife machines, and many of these people are still sick, are still struggling, and they have recurring symptoms. And to me, it's... Uh, they've done the protocols and they need something much more customized, much more targeted. Okay. And how you can find out more about this training is go to goodbylime.com front slash Lime Ninja. And that's goodbylime.com front slash Lime Ninja. And there Greg has all the information you need to register in this training. Okie dokie, this is lesson four of our four-part master class on nutrition and brain health. Yes, the first lesson was an introduction to bone broth with Ariane Resnick, the author of The Bone Broth Miracle. She taught us how bone broth should be the foundation for healing your gut, reducing inflammation, and boosting your immune system. The second master class was all about fermentation and how to make your own probiotics without spending a fortune. And this was with certified nutrition consultant, therapeutic chef, and the inventor of crowdsource, Karen Diggs. And the third lesson is about was about how antibiotics, the one we take and the ones in the food chain, affect our gut biome, the helpful bacteria in our intestines, which ter- which in turn affects our brain function. Yes. Yeah, so if you haven't listened to lesson one, two, or three yet, and you do like to do things in order, you'll want to go back and start at the beginning. Just visit our website, LimeNinjaRadio.com, and click on the link to Masterclasses. However, if you don't mind learning randomly, just keep listening, because today's lesson, lesson number four, is a deeper dive into the connection between your diet and your brain. Our expert, Amy Berger, is an expert on diet and Alzheimer's disease. Now, before you go away, you may be wondering what the connection to Lyme is, and I'm going to tell you. If you remember or you've heard, Dr. Alan McDonald has shown that Alzheimer can be a consequence of Lyme infecting the brain. In fact, he has repeatedly grown Lyme bacteria from cadaver brain tissue of people who have had Alzheimer. It's a wild result. And if you ever wonder what happens when you leave your body to science, now you know. Anyway, the point is, if you can improve brain function of people with Alzheimer's, you can also improve brain function of people with Lyme brain. So keep listening. Okay, Aurora, will you tell us about Lesson 4's expert, Amy Berger? Yeah. Amy Berger is a certified nutritional therapy practitioner and practices in the Washington, D.C. area. She holds a master's degree in human nutrition from the University of Bridgeport. Amy is the author of The Alzheimer's Antidote, a repair manual for the human brain. Thank you, Aurora. Let's dive in. This is lesson four of our four-part masterclass on nutrition and brain health. I want to talk to you about the brain and feeding it and your book and ketogenic diet. Okay. Can we do that? Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. Now, let let's let's back up a little bit and, and ease into this. So you have a master's in nutrition? Is that correct? Yes, correct. Yeah. Why? Why? Like I know how I got interested in acupuncture, I've told that story before. How do you get interested in nutrition? 
Right. Well, I do. I have a, a master's in nutrition, and I'm also a nutritional therapy practitioner in NTP. So, um, like so many people, I struggled for many, many years, much of my young adolescent and young adult life, with weight. I was overweight. I was chubby. And this was despite, you know, eating a low-fat diet, watching what I was eating, and exercising. I, I was in the Air Force. I was definitely not afraid of a hard workout. I did not lack discipline, but I just couldn't get the weight off. And, and thank goodness. I, I didn't come across any health issues, but I was just overweight. And finally, something occurred to me, hey, one and one is not adding up to two here. I'm, I'm doing all the right things. I'm working out like crazy. I'm, I'm eating a low-fat diet, lots of whole grains, whole wheat bread, and I'm gaining weight. What's going on here? And finally, I just came across the, the, the science behind lower carbohydrate approaches and it made sense and I gave it a go and I would never look back. And I, I, I remember the first time I added heavy cream to my coffee instead of <laughs> milk and I was terrified. Like, am I going to have a heart attack right now or is it going to take a couple of days? But anyway, the, the long story about how I started doing nutrition professionally and went for the education is that I just couldn't imagine knowing what I knew and not wanting to share that with people because I knew that there were other people out there struggling, mm -hmm. whether it's with weight or energy levels or blood sugar management or, or, you know, fatigue, chronic pain, whatever, that could literally have life-changing transformations through nothing else but changing what they ate. And I, I really, because of, because of the weight, I had terrible self-esteem and body image issues. And I told myself, if I could spare one person from feeling that way, then I will consider myself a success. If I can stop one person from falling into that trap of, of self-loathing and, and, and putting life on hold because they just don't like the way they look, then I will be happy. So how did you balance kind of your own discoveries there and kind of going against the grain, pun intended, and and getting your master's degree, which must have been just by the book Nutrition Advice, right? Well, no, I was pretty fortunate there. Um, the good thing about getting a degree in nutrition as opposed to just, you know, listening to the news or, or trying to piece things together yourself is that when you actually study anatomy and physiology, and human biochemistry, when you learn the scientific fact about the way the body works, it actually becomes pretty obvious what we should be eating and what we should not be eating. Um, you, can, you can spin it any way you like, but the facts are the facts. You know, cellular metabolism is the way it is. Um, so my program, I went to, I don't know if I can say the name, but I went to the University of Bridgeport, and they were um, definitely not you know, low-carb oriented or paleo Western price, but they were definitely not food pyramid either. Mm -hmm. They were kind of a middle of the road, which was good because I could, I could get both sides. You know, they, they were heavy on the science, but they also, like, like I said, not, not food pyramid at all, not regular old standard guidelines. Most of my professors were either chiropractors or naturopaths. Some of them were MDs and PhDs as well, but they were all open-minded, and all of them basically agreed, maybe we don't know 100% what we should be doing, but we know what we shouldn't be doing, because look at America, look what's happened the last 50 to 60 years, the way we're doing things now is not working. But aren't we, but aren't we supposed to be doing it better? Yeah, you would think, I mean, as time goes on, we would look at the data, look at look at people's bodies, look at our health, but... <laughs> It's, it's, you know, we're, we're doing that thing that we're doing the same thing over and over and we're expecting a different result. And that's, it's time for something else. It is time for something else. And then how did you get interested in Alzheimer's and writing a book about that? Because you wrote the Alzheimer's Antidote. Right. The Alzheimer's Antidote. Um, I was reading the book. Good Calories, Bad Calories by Gary Traub. I'm not sure how many of your listeners are familiar with that book, but... If they're not, book. they should be. They, it's yeah, a wonderful it's, book. It's not an easy read, but it will be worth every minute you put toward it. No, hang, um, hang, hang on. Did, did you really find it? I didn't find it a difficult read. Did you find it a difficult um, read? It 
it took me a couple of tries to get through it, but okay. once I did, once I steamed through it, oh boy, was that a life changer. Yeah, it's it's an amazing That's kind of like the reputation of the book, and every time somebody says, Gary Taub's good calories, bad calories, and it's a tough read, but worth it. It's like, I'm feeling like I'm, I must have fallen asleep in the middle of it, because I didn't find it that hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating, but it did take me one or two tries to get through it, but yeah. oh, it's it's. I mean, I hate to call it the Bible, but it's almost. It's almost the Bible. It is, well, and I, I have to admit, I did not read it in a. It was not. It's not a page turner. I did not read it in a single night. Right. <laughs> okay. Anyway, well, so, so read, you're reading that. I read good calories, bad calories, and he has a chapter in there. I think the name of the chapter is dementia, cancer, and aging. It's something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was the very first place I had ever heard of a possible connection between blood glucose regulation, insulin, and Alzheimer's disease. And I have no family history of Alzheimer's. I I do have a family history of type 2 diabetes and obesity, but there's no Alzheimer's. So I wasn't especially interested, but it was was still really intriguing to me. And I kind of filed it away in the back of my mind thinking like, you know, I'll, I'll look into that someday. Well, then it was a couple of years later that I was in school for nutrition. And when it came time to write my thesis, I decided to do a literature review and I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to look at that insulin Alzheimer's thing and see if there's enough there for me to write about. Well, lo and behold, I start digging into the medical literature and this is everywhere. It is all over the place. I mean, they now call Alzheimer's disease type three diabetes or diabetes of the brain. Mm-hmm. This is not, it's not new. It's not controversial. And I just couldn't believe that this this information was out there, but it wasn't trickling down to the average neurologist's office or the average family doctor. Um, the guys in the white coats who do this stuff in their labs know all about this, but nobody has put this in the hands of the average person who's trying to help a loved one with Alzheimer's or who has Alzheimer's themselves and wants to keep it in check if possible. Yeah. So let's take a time out there because this is fascinating to me because I'm an acupuncturist and one of the services I think I provide to my patients is uh, we have an hour, I've set aside an hour for each uh, appointment. So we have time to, to get into discussions about things, number one. And then number two, I'm aware of this kind of stuff. So I teach them about this kind of stuff. And it's mm-hmm. what what's what do you think is the disconnect between, like you said, the obvious science and then the practice of the science? It's like, what's the, how come it doesn't get to the front lines? I wish I could tell you. Um, that's that's a million dollar question. Um, I I think part of it is that what the science indicates is very troubling for some doctors and for lay people because the science indicates that a lot of our most dearly held dietary beliefs and lifestyle practices are completely uh, antagonistic to a healthy brain. You know, we're talking about completely turning the food recommendations upside down. We're Mm -hmm. talking about really changing some of how we live and maybe we don't want to change our habits. It's very difficult to change, but... I mean, overall, I I think probably the main reason it's not trickling down into the regular doctor's offices is it's people, I think people see Alzheimer's as so complex and so scary. It's kind of like cancer in that regard, but the answer can't possibly be so simple. The answer can't possibly be in diet and lifestyle. I mean, oh, it's so complex. It's so multifactorial. Yes, that's true. I'm not saying that's untrue. But that doesn't mean that the solution isn't rather simple and elegant. Right. Now, I'm going to throw, this might be a curve at you, and I, uh, we can spend some time. I don't mean it to be a curve. However, I have to bring this up because many of my uh, listeners know this. Do you know the work of Dr. Alan McDonald with Lyme disease and Alzheimer's? I do not, but okay. This is <laughs> this gets very, very interesting. And there was just a study that came out that kind of supports this in an oblique way. So his work, he went to the Harvard Brain Bank, got Alzheimer's tissue, and uh, cultured it, and was able to grow Lyme spirochetes out of the brain tissue. And I forget the number, not a hundred percent, but like eight out of twelve of these brains, this brain tissue. So there, there are people out there who have some, 
you know, it's not 100% science yet, but boy, it's sure like a smoking gun that there's some, inf- there could also be some infectious agent involved with the formation of these plaques. And there was an article that came out, let's see, yes, no, well, I came across it yesterday, and the, the headline is, Alzheimer's may spread via blood transfusions and dental accidents. So the question is, well, okay, how how come? So this gets very interesting because I'm all about the Alzheimer's as a type 3 diabetes. I think that is just they hit the nail on the head. So what has me curious and why I was very, very interested to talk to you is then there's probably also some immune function component with having your blood sugar high as opposed to having it low and your insulin levels low. That's that's somehow also protective. So it may not simply be a metabolic energy issue, which there absolutely is. And maybe with the reason the brain's so hungry is because it's trying to fight off an infection in there, right? And if it can't get the, the energy it needs in, within the brain, it's, it's, it's going to suffer even more. But there's, what do you, what do you know about ketogenic diets and diets in general and the immune system? Can we talk about that or should we follow through? With uh, eating and the ketogenic diet and taking care of the brain that way, which I mean, I can I can give my best educated speculation about about viruses and different kinds of immune factors. Yes, let's speculate. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because that's what it is, right? I will never say this is the answer, and yeah. and anyone who does tell you that is is probably trying to sell you something. Uh, but, um, a- amen. <laughs> <laughs> so what what I think is if there is some type of immune component to Alzheimer's, it is probably linked or it could be linked to blood sugar dysregulation because when we flood the system with carbohydrate and with glucose, it suppresses the immune system. I mean, cortisol does the same thing and cortisol basically raises blood glucose. Um, and that's, you know, why people, people get prednisone shots and cortisone shots to suppress the immune system. It's a pain reliever. So... And it's, it's, it's hang, like, well, I got to break this out a little bit because I, I I need to learn from you. So one of the things that happens is some of my patients when they have prednisone shots is their blood sugar spikes like crazy, right? Well, of course it does. It's a synthetic steroid. That's what steroids do. Okay. They raise blood glucose. And then how does the blood glucose dampen down the immune system? Can I, you explain I, that? I, yeah, well, kind, I mean, I can give the difference. 10,000 foot view. I that, don't know. That's more than I have. I've, I've got the view from Mars. I can't even see it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know the cellular mechanism, but it's, I mean, to generalize, it's, it's almost like when the system is flooded with glucose, the body is so busy, quote unquote, fighting off the glucose that the immune system doesn't have time to go uh. after viruses and colds and all this other stuff. And, and in fact, I think a lot of people who transition to a low-carb diet or even a paleo-type diet that's lower in carbohydrate, one of the, one of the things they notice over time is, hey, I don't get sick as often. Yeah, hey, my exactly. allergies are much, much better. Yeah, yeah. You know why? Because your immune system isn't so busy dealing with all this carbohydrate. It now has the time and resources to go after the real threats, the real illnesses. That makes sense. Right. So the phase, the fat storing phase that bears go through and other mammals go through and humans go through, although uh, not to the same degree, obviously, is is very inflammatory toward the end of the year. So that's, it, it just, it does make sense. It does make sense. So let's, so now we've got that blood sugar's an issue. So we, and, and the other thing I want to talk about is people confuse, people do have this idea of kind of good carbs, bad carbs. Mm-hmm. And so they'll say, well, you know, I'm eating quinoa and, you know, I'm eating yogurt and I'm, they've got all these things that they eat that they say are healthy and, or I, I heard some, oh, my patient the other day, God bless her. And I love her to death. But she said, I had my quinoa in the morning and I didn't put sugar on it. I said, well, what did you put on it? And she said, maple syrup. Oh my God! I laughed out loud at her, oh. and we, I had to apologize a little bit because <laughs> she got a little oh, bit offended. Yeah. She said, right. hey, "But it's not like white sugar." I said, "Come on!" 
Yeah. <laughs> so it's throwing a few minerals. And we make our own maple syrup. I have nothing against maple syrup. However, it's sugar and to be delusional right. about that. So can you talk a little bit just about a carb? Is there that much difference between whole wheat bread and white bread and quinoa versus wheat? And what yeah, are, what's um, your take? So when, when we say carbohydrate, most people immediately think of starch. They think bread, bagels, pasta, rice, but there, there are only three macronutrients. There's protein, carbohydrate, and fat. So look at something like lettuce or broccoli or spinach. That's obviously not a fat, and it's not a protein. There's only one thing left. Those things are carbohydrates. So people don't realize that eggplant is a carbohydrate, zucchini, you know, radishes, what have you. All of those vegetables are carbohydrates. So I, I really don't like to say that there are good carbs and bad carbs. It, it, it's relative. Um, can your body handle a certain amount and type of carbohydrate? Mm-hmm. Are you young? Are you insulin sensitive? Are you lean? Do you do CrossFit? Are you extremely active? In that case, you might do better with a little bit of sweet potatoes in your diet, with a little bit of rice, with a little bit of beans. There are other people who, for whatever reason, absolutely really cannot tolerate any of that. And that stuff is like poison. It's like putting fuel on the fire in a bad way. Um, now, I, I mean, I think we can say there are quote-unquote bad carbs, you know, if we want to talk about corn syrup and, and all this other processed stuff. Twinkies. But I, I will borrow, I'll, I'll borrow from Dr. William Davis, who okay. wrote Belly. He likes to say, when, when he talks about whole wheat bread, because people are like, oh, but, but I'm eating whole grain pasta and whole grain bread. Whole grain bread is better than white bread in the sense that Filtered cigarettes are better than unfiltered cigarettes. That doesn't make them good for you. All they are is less bad. You know what I mean? That's the thing. Whole grain bread is still bread. It's just slightly less bad. But being less bad doesn't mean it's good. I have to steal that one for my practice. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I, it, it's definitely Dr. Davis. If I wish I could take credit for it. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. Okay, so so then, so we've got this, okay, we've kind of, we're transitioning our way over here. So we've got this idea that brain health has something to do with blood sugar, and blood sugar has something to do with the amount of carbohydrates that we're eating. So what happens, but don't you, let me ask this question. It's a setup, it's a softball. Don't, don't you need carbohydrates? Doesn't your brain... Can't, can't you go too low and doesn't that affect your hormones and doesn't that affect your brain? And aren't you just going to fall over dead because your muscles don't have any energy? Um, yes and no. Okay. Number one, no one ever died from a whole grain deficiency. There is no <laughs> such thing as a pasta deficiency. Um, number two, and really the only other number is yes, the body and the brain need glucose. That doesn't mean we have to eat high-carbohydrate foods. The body is a beautiful, beautiful, complex thing, a system of systems that can make glucose out of other things when we don't eat any. So, and I'm, and I'm not saying everybody needs to be on a super low-carbohydrate diet or nobody should ever eat carbohydrate ever. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is that if you do eat a very low-carbohydrate diet, your body will make plenty of glucose out of amino acids from protein, out of um, it, part of fat molecules break down and they can be made into glucose. I mean, the body has redundant processes in place to take care of you when when you're not eating a lot of carbohydrate. Um, and again, you can, you can eat plenty of carbohydrate in the form of things like lettuce and yellow squash and bell peppers and salads, you know, and, and still get more than enough for your brain. You, you don't need to be eating English muffins and crackers. You don't need to carb load? No, not even, not even marathoners need to carb load. And that's, that's a, that's a crazy thing I just said, but um, there's definitely some professional triathletes and marathoners that are, that are doing it on, on ketogenic and low carb diets. Yeah. So, and, and I should say the brain, when, when you do transition to a very low carbohydrate diet, the glucose requirements of the brain actually reduce because <laughs> the brain can be fed by ketones and by these other substrates so that, yeah, you still need glucose, but you actually need far less 
than somebody whose brain is accustomed to running on hundreds and, and hundreds of, of grams of glucose a day. Yes, yeah. that's a very good point. Wow, this is so fascinating to me. Uh, how much, I hope you know the answer to this, how much glucose does the body need or the, the range? I mean, do you know how many grams it is? I I couldn't say for the whole body. I know they say the brain needs, I think they say it's about 120 to 140 a day, but I think that is based off of somebody who is not in a highly ketogenic state. State, right. I don't know what the requirement would be if, you know, upwards of 40, 50% of the brain's needs are coming from glucose. Oh, right. sorry, from ketones. Right. Okay. So that science may not be out there. That's, I'm, this is one thing I'm very interested in. So I recently switched over. I eat generally for the past 15 years a low carbohydrate diet, accepting binges that happen from time to time. Mm-hmm. And I recently transitioned to a ketogenic diet. And I got the keto stick thing that's measuring my acetone, which is related to the ketones, and I'm blowing red regularly in it. And one thing I came across, we, we both uh, are familiar with Jimmy Moore mm-hmm. and all his work. He he has another podcast called uh, Living La Vida Low Carb. And, I, was, I was on his show a couple of months ago. I love Jimmy. Uh, yeah. Oh, great. I have to mm-hmm. look you up on that one. He interviewed a Dr. Jacob Wilson who Mm -hmm. does some ketogenic research and they were talking about keto adaption. So there's the first phase where you just adjust your macronutrients and then because you're not getting the, the sugar that you're used to, your body starts produce, starts burning fat and making ketones. But in the beginning, like you said, with the brain there, the body doesn't burn these, these substrates, these different, fuel sources efficiently. We I think we kind of have this myth that all I have to do is switch off my diet. And and I'm 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 very curious about how long it takes. And I know there's a range and if there's some measure because the other thing you talk about uh, or reading the Atkins book when people used to pee on the ketone sticks and initially you'd pee on it and say, Yay, that's purple, I'm making ketones. And then all of a sudden the purple would go away. And people say, oh, my goodness, I must have cheated or must be doing something wrong. But that's more like the body starting to burn up these ketones and starting to use them efficiently. And so yeah. one, one of the issues with these diets that people get into is, a, well, you know, I tried I tried a ketogenic diet for five days and I felt terrible. Or I tried it for two <laughs> weeks and I felt terrible, right? Right. So what's going on there? Right. Well, you know, ask anyone who's given up smoking. Did they feel great the next day or the second day? Well, they probably felt like, you know, like like that, frankly. And I, I don't think anyone would say, well, you must need those cigarettes then. Your body, your body's telling you you need to be smoking again. No. In a lot of these um, dietary changes or lifestyle or whatever, if you're making a very big change, sometimes you feel worse before you feel better. And that doesn't mean it's not working. It means it takes time for your body to adjust. You know, there, when you overnight remove a, a, a type of food stuff that has been probably at least 50% of your diet for maybe your whole life. Maybe you're 40 years old, maybe you're 60 years old. You are not going to feel some magical transformation the very next day. Um, your, your body has to ramp up these enzyme processes, these, these cellular machinery it's not online yet. It takes, it takes a little while for that stuff to ramp up. And so when you are in that limbo phase where your body's still looking for all the glucose, but it's not getting any, but it's not yet prepared to handle all the fat and ketones, you feel what, what we sometimes call the induction flu or the keto flu. Um, you will have a raging headache. You will be dizzy. You will be nauseous. If you're, if you're an athlete, your performance will decline temporarily. Once your body kicks into gear with this, you're going to feel like a million bucks, but you just have to get past that phase. And that it does vary how long that phase takes. It depends on how, how carb addled you are to begin with, how dependent <laughs> your body is on all that carbohydrate, yeah. um, how active you are. You know, you can kind of ramp those processes up a little more quickly. But generally, I mean, it takes at least a couple of days to, to, de- to deplete your glycogen. It, 
it could be faster if you work out really hard with the intention of depleting that glycogen, but um, it could take anywhere from days to weeks, and, and it just depends on, on individuality, I think, but it, it's definitely not overnight. At work, I have this one of these newfangled scales that gives you an estimate of your body fat and uh, hydration level. And one of the measurements, it actually measures bones, and that that measurement seems to be pretty consistent. Another measurement that's pretty consistent is it gives an estimation of your visceral fat, mm-hmm. which is a slightly different composition than the fat that we carry underneath our skin, our adipose tissue. Um, and... So I've been on this ketogenic diet now for, uh, I forget exactly, so somewhere between 10 days and and 14 days. And for Mm -hmm. the first time yesterday, this visceral fat number budged. So Ah. I I had been losing weight up to to that point. Um, Mm -hmm. But for the first time, this number went down from 12 pounds to 10. And I'm, I'm wondering if that isn't... A signal that okay, my body's starting to burn fat more efficiently. So instead of using the gluconeogenesis to kind of keep the sugar burning pathways still working, it's finally giving up and saying, okay, let's burn some of this visceral fat that really there's a little too much there. You know, it should it shouldn't be up around with that number. (laughs) Yeah, no, you are you are right and not right. So let's start with the part you are right about. Okay. Um. Initially, when people go on very low-carb diets, they do lose a lot of water weight because for every gram of glycogen we store, which is a stored carbohydrate in our muscles and our liver, we store around two and a half grams of water. So when you are not consuming any carbohydrate, your body will use the stores it has. So when it burns through that glycogen, it uses that water too, and that water gets released. So after the first couple of days, once you're huge glycogen stores are depleted, you will start tapping into the fat. So that's why people always say, oh, well, when you go on a low-carb diet, you just lose water weight. Well, yeah, for the first couple of days, but then you tap into the fat stores and you stay tapped into the fat stores as long as you continue low-carbing. So um, the, the the part where you're not right, and it's, it's not, I'm not saying like, oh, you're not right, you don't know. This is just to clarify for your listeners. Your body is always doing gluconeogenesis. It's not that because you're burning more fat, you're not turning things into glucose. You have to be doing gluconeogenesis all the time. That's what provides the glucose your brain does need even on a low-carb diet. Because even even when the brain is getting ketones, it does still need some glucose for sure. Um, and, they're, you know, like the red blood cells don't have any mitochondria. They can only burn glucose. There are different parts of the body that do require glucose. So um, gluconeogenesis, thank goodness, it is going on all the time, but it's supposed to, that's, that's where most of our blood glucose should come from. It shouldn't come from Lucky Charm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay, very good. Thanks for clearing that up. So now we've kind of transitioned all the way. So now we've got this these ketones being released in the body. Now, why are these ketones so good for the brain? Why is, and why is, why is a high fat, because a ketogenic diet, we really haven't defined that, and I apologize for that. A ketogenic diet, so define a ketogenic diet. It's like, what are their macronutrients ranges? Um, it, it depends. A ketogenic diet generally is very, very low in carbohydrate, uh, somewhat moderate in protein, and very high in fat. Um, it's, it's a low carb diet. To like the tenth degree, it's a low carb diet on crack, so to speak. <laughs> you, can, you can be on a low carb diet that is not necessarily ketogenic. Um, so a ketogenic diet is it varies from person to person depending on how sensitive they are to carbohydrates. Some people can eat more than others and still be in a ketogenic state. Most people need to be eating less than fifty grams of total carbohydrates. Some people will not get into ketosis unless they're under about 30 grams. Yeah, but I have to be that usually, low. Yeah, yeah. It is, as a percentage of your total calories, it could be anywhere from like, I would say probably no more than 15%, mm-hmm. maybe 20% if you're especially active, but then I'd be surprised if you were if you were in ketosis. But it's, it's still like just much, much lower than the average person out there is eating. Right. And then, like, high fat, what is, 
what does high fat mean? Because people, you know, people are so terrified of fat that think high fat is is having regular salad dressing. Huh. Um, yeah, high fat is the diet could be anywhere from you know fifty to seventy five, eighty percent fat on a ketogenic diet. Um, and, and the reason it has to be so high is because we get these ketones from fat. When we're burning through fat at a high rate, whether it's I mean, and that's usually a combination of dietary fat from the foods we eat and stored body fat, when we're burning through this fat, um, a byproduct of that is these ketones. And these ketones are just another type of fuel that different tissues in the body can use. But the diet, I mean, the body kind of has a natural threshold for protein. If you eat too much protein, you'll get sick, especially in the absence of fat. So when you eat very, very, very little carbohydrate, you have to eat more fat. You, you have to get energy from somewhere, right? We, we think, oh, calories, fat, it's so scary. Well, let's use the word energy. You have to get energy from somewhere. You have to get fuel from somewhere. Mm-hmm. If it's not coming from carbohydrate anymore, and, and we, we can only really tolerate physiologically a certain threshold of protein, then the rest has to come from fat. Right, right. So just, and it's okay because in the absence of the carbohydrate, guess what? That butter is not going to make you fat, and that that high calorie, that high fat, is not going to uh, put on body fat in the absence of, of insulin and carbohydrate. So I start my. Some people start their morning with a protein shake. I start my morning with a fat shake. I make my coffee and I blend in uh, somewhere around a half a stick of butter. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's, so that's my morning. And then yesterday, my daughter makes crepes at uh, the farmer's market. And so I Ooh. went over there and I had the, the innards of the crepe, <laughs> the crepe filling, and it was locally raised bacon and oh, avocado wow. and sour cream. Oh, you're speaking my language. <laughs> right. And so that was my lunch. And I'm trying to remember what was for dinner last night. And I don't, I came home late and I don't remember. Oh, I know what it was. You know what? And this is probably, it wasn't great, but we were in a crunch and time crunch. And um, we had Chinese food, but I didn't get anything fried. I got Szechuan shrimp and I'm sure there are carbohydrates in the sauce, but I tried to minimize that, but vegetables and shrimp. So except for the sauce, it was probably okay. And this morning I was still blowing red on the keto thing. So it didn't knock me out of ketosis. But that's, that's, you know, when people are talking about a high-fat diet, that's sort of what they're talking about. And it, it does seem scary to a lot of people when you're eating, you know, I, this is an aside. So I'm going to go on a little rant here, people. Sorry, there's certain things that get me crazy. Oh, low, I love rants. Low-fat <laughs> milk makes me insane because full-fat people, I live in a, a move from Washington, D.C. in the middle of the city into my neighbor now is an organic dairy person. Right. So I'm in the country now and full fat milk only has 4% fat in it. 4%. There's nothing out there that has 4%. If you bought 4% lean meat, you'd have to slather it in something to choke it down. And people want to cut. They're saying, oh, we can't have the little bit of fat in milk. People, we're nuts. We've gotten crazy about fat. Absolutely insane about it. It's a wonderful thing. It's yeah, a wonderful thing. That, yeah, but skim milk. It's really just sugar and protein because you don't have the fat. You might as well just drink, I don't know, orange juice and milk or something else that's just sugar. And yeah. frankly, you need fat to absorb calcium. So we've got all these women on extremely low-fat diets choking down all the skim milk and fat-free yogurt and fat-free sour cream. And guess what? They're osteoporotic. Yeah, well, you need fat to absorb the minerals. And, and not just calcium, but magnesium, boron, any of these, miracle, uh, these min- minerals that make bone. Yeah, all the vegetable... Uh, minerals too you need you need that's why we eat salad dressing on things and a low-fat salad dressing isn't going to do yeah. it isn't going to do it there's a reason you're supposed to put butter on your sweet potato if you are eating sweet potatoes <laughs> every, every single time right. <laughs> i put butter on everything we have a local creamery uh crime held and he uh he makes local butter and when i can't get that i get the carry gold butter from ireland Mm-hmm. And just I can't. Yeah, you would, oh, you are so lucky to be living up where you do. Uh, oh, it must it, be so beautiful. It, you know what? It really, really is. You have to come visit one time. Mm. Okay, the last. Let's let's hit the home stretch here because this is really a marathon of a conversation we're having. So we, now we've changed our diet. We're producing all these great ketones. Again, why does this make the brain happy? 
Okay, the brain... As opposed um, to the carbohydrate giving us Alzheimer's later on in life. Like, what's the difference between the two? Right. Um, We're all used to hearing that glucose is, quote-unquote, the preferred fuel for the brain and, and the body as a whole, but really the brain. And that is true only... Okay, let me rephrase. We're used to hearing that it's a preferred fuel for the body. It's only preferred in the sense that it will be used first. It's not better. It's not more efficient. It's not physiologically safer. It's almost like the body's using it first to get rid of it because it's so harmful. And again, I'm not saying like glucose in the blood is always harmful. We need blood glucose. We need glucose. That's that's fine. But it's almost like when you drink alcohol, alcohol is the first thing the body burns. Why? To get rid of it. Not because it's such a great fuel and it's so good for you. So um, when Alzheimer's disease basically happens when the brain, for many, many reasons, becomes unable to use glucose as efficiently as it should. So essentially, the brain cells start to starve to death, and communication is lost between these, these brain cells, and what happens? Memory loss, confusion, behavioral problems. So the other fuel that the brain loves that, that we never hear about is ketones. Glucose is not the only fuel the brain can use. The brain can absolutely use ketones and absolutely thrive on them. The problem with the modern diet is we almost never give the brain ketones because we're all slurping down so much carbohydrate all day. The brain will only have access to these ketones when we keep carbohydrate low enough and so that insulin is low enough that the body has no choice but to switch over to burning fat and producing these ketones. So it's, it's almost like a super fuel for the brain. It's a fuel that they, they very rarely get in modern times. I think, you know, probably thousands of years ago in a different dietary landscape, ketones were a regular feature of human metabolism. It's only, it's only recently that, that we never expose our brains to this critical uh, compound. And so when you're coaching clients and they go through the ketogenic transition, what do they say about their brain function and thinking and clarity and things like that? It's actually one of the first things that people report uh, when they switch to a low-carb diet, again, after that transition period. they um, A lot of them do it for weight loss. I mean, that's, that's what ketogenic and low-carb diets are great for. But before the scale budges, they notice these changes. They notice the brain bond is gone. It's like someone has lifted the veil and um, sharp thinking, better memory. And, and they're like, this this is how I'm supposed to feel? Like, wow, I, 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 I'm getting so much done. I don't have to write down everything to remind myself. And it's it's staggering because this is, this is, yeah, this is how it's supposed to feel. You're not supposed to have brain fog. You're not supposed to be tired all the time. So when you, when you're on the blood sugar roller coaster, and you're up and down all day, well, every time you get down, that's when you get you get irritable, you get shaky, you get forgetful, the brain fog. When you get off that roller coaster and your body is using fat and ketones, it's steady all day. You don't get those drops. You don't get the brain fog. You don't get hunger. We call it hanger, right? Combination of hunger and anger. <laughs> you don't get hangry. You just get hungry for a nice meal. You don't you don't get to the point where you're so ravenous you want to kill somebody if you don't get fed in five seconds. Um, that's It's really the beauty of ketones is it just kind of evens everything out because it absolutely gets you off that wild blood sugar ride. So just thinking while you were talking about that, Gary Taubes wrote Good Calories, Bad Calories, um, and could could have been called Good Carbs, Bad Carbs. We, we kind of need mm-hmm. a Good Fats, Bad Fats so I'm just gonna Ooh. I'm gonna uh-huh. rattle off some fats and why don't you just give me short answers on whether they're good or bad. Okay. I, I will before I do that though, I'll, I'll recommend a book to your listeners. It's called Know Your Fats and it's by Mary Ennig, E N I G. It of is course. probably the best book about fats that's out there. And it's maybe a little heavy on the science, but I, I don't think it is. I think it's it's a good book for lay people. Yeah, she's anyway, bri- go ahead. she's brilliant. <laughs> so so let's start with uh canola oil. Oh, not the worst, but there's far better out there. I, I I don't use it myself. Soy oil. Oh, avoid. I don't know. No, it's in teeny tiny amounts. Like it's 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 almost impossible to avoid if you're at a restaurant or you're buying a salad dressing. Small amounts. 
are fine, but I would absolutely not buy a jug of vegetable oil to cook with because that's vegetable oil is all soy. So, th- so corn oil too, like that. Yeah, same thing. I would teeny tiny amounts here and there. You shouldn't freak out about, but don't buy a bottle of it to keep in your kitchen and cook with. Okay, lard. <laughs> love lard. Use it. Use it and love it. It should. It, it needs to reclaim its proper place as the the cherished fat of the kitchen. <laughs> I mean, it's high. It's high in saturated fat. It's high in monounsaturated fat. It's high in oleic acid, which is the same individual fatty acid that's so high on olive oil. So all of these, it's like olive oil is the one fat that everybody agrees on because it's so healthy. So I, I say move over heart healthy Mediterranean diet. Let's make room for heart healthy lard. Are you familiar, i go on this aside thing for just for 30 seconds. Are you familiar with the Blue Zone, the guys coming out with the Blue Zone book and the dietary and live to 100 things? Have you come familiar across that? Familiar with the general principles, yeah. Yeah, so one, one of the interesting things, I may have heard this through Wester Price, actually, as in the Okinawan. So there, there are three mm-hmm. zones. There's the California zone where the, the, the Seventh-day Adventists and their vegetarians. And then there's a zone, I forget, in northern Italy or Central Europe somewhere. and So a lot of people there live to be 100. And then there's the Okinawan zone. And mm-hmm. the takeaway that this author has come from is, oh, you have to eat vegetables, right? That's the takeaway. And the stuff he patently ignores is the Okinawans in the traditional diet cook everything in lard. Right. They cook. That's what they use. That's the fat they fry in. So when they do their stir Absolutely. fry of all vegetables, they're cooking in lard. Yep. And so is there, is there, can you buy bad lard? It's like for a while I was buying like the snowflake lard in the light blue package in the grocery store. And then I kind of read on the side that it's partially hydrogenated. And now I just kind of render down my bacon and keep that. So what is there? Yeah, bad? You, can, um, you can buy, you can, you can render your own if you're buying good quality pork and bacon and you can save that fat to cook with. Or if you go to, a farmer's market or a, a farm that has a shop on site, a lot of them will sell rendered lard. And it's from the pigs that are pastured. They're eating, you know, organic organic feed or they're just out there in, in the pasture eating whatever they can forage for. And that's, that's the kind of lard you want. I, would, I wouldn't get lard from a regular store unless, I mean, if, if the label indicates that it's the real deal, then do it. But if it says, yeah, I, I don't know why they need to hydrogenate lard. Lard is is already a pretty solid substance, and that's what hydrogenation does. It takes liquid oil to make them into a solid. So I don't even know why they. Well, if it's on us, if it's on an unair conditioned shelf in the south somewhere, it might just drip on down the shelf. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have room in the in the refrigerator section for it. I don't know. Who knows? And two more coconut oil. Oh, use it. Use it and love it. And avocado oil. I haven't used it myself, but based on its um, fatty acid profile, I think it's probably very good for you. It's very similar to olive oil, and then it's very high in that monounsaturated fat. And um, I don't, I wouldn't use it to like deep fry in. You could definitely use it as a finishing oil, as a salad dressing. And you could probably do like low temperature cooking with it because it's i mean it's if, if it is so similar to olive oil then there's really no harm in in cooking some vegetables in it amy you have been a wealth of information i may have enjoyed this interview more than any other i've done because uh, well got... i enjoyed it too and i, I want to let you know i if, if anyone is interested in yes. getting my book the alzheimer's antidote i did put up a 10 percent discount for your listeners oh cool um how do we get yeah, that it's at www.alzheimersantidote.com, and they just have to enter the code NINJA2015. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Very cool code. And tell me about your website, too, your your blog site. How can people get uh, hold of you if they right want to get a consultation? or? They can find me at tuitnutrition.com. It's T-U-I-T nutrition.com, and that's my blog and my, my services are all in there. And, um, do you have a contact that's form? Where they can find me. Yeah. You got a contact form. They can contact you through that. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's on the website. Okay. And finally, to wrap this all up, top three recommendations for people in health, brain health. Uh, get off sugar. Okay. You don't have to be a nut about it. Once in a while, you need to have a piece of chocolate cake, have it. But for the vast majority of your time, Get off sugar. 
um, stop being afraid of fat. And I'm not just talking the politically correct fat, like olive oil and salmon and walnuts. It's okay to eat beef. It's okay to eat bacon. Uh, it's okay to eat highly saturated coconut oil. And the other thing, you don't have to be an exercise nut, but try to move your body in some way, preferably if you can get outdoors. I, I really think just the role of fresh air and daylight is so underestimated in overall health. You know, if you don't want to be a, a triathlete, that's fine, but get out there and do something. Go for a walk. If that's all you can do, do it. Fabulous. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. This has been great. Wow. I learned a lot. It, it continuously surprises me how closely linked blood sugar levels and brain function are. Yes. Like, yeah. The brain's a really hungry organ. In fact, in Chinese medicine, they call it the curious organ. It's one of the curious organs. And it does need a ton of nutrition. And depending on what your diet, what your metabolism is adjusted to, you know, if you're having trouble metabolizing sugar because you're insulin resistant, that can cause all kinds of problems. And that's where going over to a ketogenic diet can be so helpful in that you can burn the ketones and insulin isn't really involved in that process nearly as much as it is with sugar. Okay, that wraps right. up Masterclass Lesson 4. If you miss any of the previous lessons, you can go to our website. Just visit our website, LimeNinjaRadio.com, and click on the link to Masterclasses. Okie dokie. Thank you, Aurora, and thank you, Ninjas. Bye, everybody. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.